Hi, Nikki. How are you doing? Happy New Year. What did you get up to? Did you have a good break? Happy New Year to you too. I was in Cyprus for a week or so. It was really good just getting some sun and also going hiking as well. And how about you? Lovely. You've got some family over there, have you? Yeah, most of my family lives in Cyprus. I've had a long time off work. It's been really nice. People might remember we had our second little boy last October. So I took a bit of leave over Christmas and then tacked on some extended paternity leave, which is a really nice thing the LCP offer that I feel very grateful for. So I took a couple of weeks of that as well. So I've had a good few weeks off work. But as I will say, with two little ones running around or one little one running around, it's been pretty full on, but it's been lovely. But in Portugal, so a bit of time on the beach, sandcastles, sticker books, all that sort of good stuff. Amazing. People might remember from conversation at the end of last year, Mary is off on a three-month sabbatical. I think she's in Belize, last I saw from some photos, having a great time. And in the interim, we have Nikki and another colleague, Lasia, are going to be helping out, doing some of the co-hosting. Really delighted that Nikki and Lasia are going to be helping us out a little bit. So you're going to be hearing from both of them a little bit more. Nikki, you've obviously co-hosted one show before, probably about a year ago. People may or may not remember that a little while ago now, but why don't you just sort of say hi, give us some insight into your role at LCP and what you get up to. So I work in manager research at LCP, predominantly focusing on multi-asset funds. I also look at esoteric funds, so looking at new ideas for LCP's clients. The latest one that we looked at was Timber, as an example. In my spare time, I like to do quite a lot of exercise and also big on music, singing in particular. You looked at Bitcoin and stuff, didn't you, at one point, or you were certainly prompting some internal conversations about that, I guess. I don't know if that wasn't entirely serious or not. but Yeah, that was one of the new ideas that we looked at, I think, a couple of years ago now. And we just didn't think that it met the criteria to be an asset class. So whilst it was interesting research, we didn't think it was worth taking it forward for clients to invest in. And I think that that's quite justified given the volatility that it's seen since then. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a nice mandate you've got there to sort of dive into all sorts of different ideas and try and figure out what actually is going to work for clients. Definitely. And on the exercise front, then any plans for the year, runs or events or anything that you're lining up? I'm actually not a fan of running. It's the one thing I don't like, but I've always been quite big on exercise. So I do a lot of HIIT classes, generally cardio, aerobics as well. So I think old school 80s type of classes, also yoga, anything and everything. Old school 80s aerobics. Love it. That is brilliant. Cool. And anything in particular that you're looking forward to about being involved with the podcast for the next little while? I think it's really fun interviewing people. I think adjusting to their particular styles is the best way to get the most out of each podcast. And I think the more experience you get, the better you get at interviewing people. Totally second that. I completely agree. I think it's a fascinating skill, actually. You can keep on developing that skill for quite a while. Great. Okay, then we are going to run this episode now. It's actually one we recorded last year. So you're going to hear Mary and me talking to Annie Duke about quitting, which is, I think, quite an interesting topic to talk about this time of year. We've been really excited about this one, actually. We were quite keen to hold it back for the first one of New Year, because I think it's one of the best ones we've done. Should we get on and let Annie talk to us about quitting? Sure. Let's go for it. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Hi, everyone. This week, we are talking decision-making. And in particular, we're talking quitting. And for that conversation, we're absolutely delighted to be joined all the way from Philadelphia by author Annie Duke. Annie, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's exciting because we're only five hours apart. So it's like a totally normal time of day for me, which is awesome. (laughs) Absolutely. And we were just reflecting off air, weren't we, that it's already getting dark here in the UK. But for you, it's late morning, which is nice. We have one state that refuses to do daylight savings. Really? So they're out of sync? It's Arizona. They go off for me with Arizona. Sometimes I'm three hours apart from Arizona and sometimes I'm two hours apart from Arizona. Yeah, that feels confusing. They were just like, no, we don't want it to be dark at 4 p.m. (laughs) Thing is, it's dark in the morning as well for us these days. That's true, us too. We've missed the bit where it's a real advantage. Annie, I wondered if you could give the listeners, I guess a sense of your background and what led you to become an author. That's something that I would refer to myself as only recently. 
I think I'm seven books in or something, and I'm finally like, well, maybe I'm an author. <laughs> what led me to writing these types of books actually just has to do with generally my background. So I started off as a cognitive scientist. I did five years worth of PhD work at the University of Pennsylvania here in Philly. And I was thinking about like learning and uncertainty and should sound familiar, all the things that I write about now. Then at the end of that, for reasons that were a little bit not in my control, I had to take some time off because I got sick and I started playing poker in order to make up the difference just in terms of money. And I loved it. And I actually ended up not going back to academics and I kept playing poker and I did that for 18 years. And then about eight years in, I started thinking about the way that poker, which was this very real life, high stakes version of how do you think about and solve for decision-making under uncertainty, how poker that could have this really interesting conversation with cognitive science, which much of cognitive science is thinking about the same issues. Started doing that through giving talks in business, was reminded how much I love teaching, and then did that for about 10 years. So I started exploring through speaking and some consulting this conversation between cognitive science and poker and what maybe my weird background could bring to the table in terms of thinking about decision-making under uncertainty. So in 2012, I retired from poker. And one of the things I really wanted to do when I did that was to write a book called Thinking in Bets. I had written some poker books before that, just thinking about trying to teach people how to play poker. But now I really wanted to write this, what I would think about as the culmination of the work I had been doing in the business sector. And so that resulted in that book. And then it got really well received. And I wrote How to Decide after that. And then most recently, I will quit The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. And that was my third general audience book that really just came out of, I had these two weird things in my background, academic, cognitive scientist, and poker player. And I said, these two things can really inform each other. And I just really loved thinking in that space and that conversation. Then I wanted to write it. So that's what I did. That confluence of those two things has been a really rich vein of stuff to mine, it seems like, because you're at least three books in on that, which was all great. I've dipped into all of them. And there just seems there's so much there that hasn't already been said, I guess, once you mix those two things together. So it's been great. That's true. You've clearly got a really varied CV, but one question we always ask everyone, Annie, is what's one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV? The most interesting thing that I would say about me that people wouldn't find on the CV is actually a little something about my family, which is my grandfather had to drop out of school in sixth grade. His family emigrated from Eastern Europe. And by the time he was in sixth grade, he was an orphan. Wow. And so he had to go out onto the street and start selling stuff in order to survive. And my father has a PhD. So I just think that's such an amazing, just in one generation, how that changes things. And then obviously his three kids have done very well and are well-educated and so on and so forth. From that one generation of never finishing middle school, to PhD in the next generation. I just think that's such a cool thing about my family. And I think that it's part of the reason why for me, so much of how I think about what is the good that I'm going to do in the world is around education, because I see the power of education in terms of changing people's outcomes. Did your grandfather talk a lot about that, his experiences? I never knew him. He died oh. when my dad was 14 years old. So my dad was the product of a second marriage at a time when that was rare. His closest sibling was 17 years older than him. He's the only surviving sibling at this point. So he had two sisters and two brothers, half. And the closest one to him was 17 when he was born. And his dad died in his 50s on top of that. I never met him. That just makes it even more powerful, actually, the impact that he managed to pass down through the generations if he actually wasn't even around for all that long, even in your father's life. Like I say, my dad was 14 when his father died. Obviously, he made a lot of his life and made it all the way to Harvard Law School, which he dropped out of to go into the teaching program to become a teacher because he decided he wanted to do that instead of law. And that led him on his way eventually to, he got a master's and then eventually got a PhD. I love those generational kind of trajectories. Listeners will know I've become a dad fairly recently. And so you get focused on looking back at your own story and your parents and your grandparents and everything and looking back at what our grandparents had to go through in a lot of cases. It's quite inspiring, isn't it? So thank you for sharing that. That's really nice. 
turn to the subjects at hand, the book and your most recent book, Quit. It's a book about quitting. And one thing I always like to ask authors is, why write that book? Why now? I mean, what gap was it filling in the universe, did you think? So it was really funny. When I finished my last book, How to Decide, just so people know, writing a book is really hard <laughs> and it's torturous and it's so much anxiety. And there's always this point where you're in the middle of it and you're like, I'm never going to finish. I don't know how to get my way out of the material. And then it's so stressful because you go from like writing a book, which maybe a few people have seen to like, now it's going to get exposed to the world for everybody to say very mean things about it. So after I wrote that book, I really was like, I don't want to write a book again. I'm done. And I would say within a couple of weeks of uttering that sentence, I was like, no, actually, not only do I want to write a book, but it's a book that I have to write. And that was quit. For the reason that I just got really obsessed with this idea that what I'm really talking about in Thinking in Bats is this problem that we have as decision makers, that we have to decide things, in other words, to start things under conditions of uncertainty, luck influences the outcome in ways that we can't control. I think that we all feel that pretty keenly after the pandemic. We all know stuff happens and you don't control those things that happen. And then there's just the issue of what's the quality of the information that you're inputting into the decision, which gets affected by two things. One is bias, which is go read Thinking Fast and Slow. You'll learn all about cognitive bias. But then also just incomplete information, which is for most things that we're deciding, we know so little in comparison to all there is to be known. So the question then is, how are we supposed to deal with this situation? We're going to make a decision. Luck is going to intervene in ways that we have no control over. And we know we're going to learn a whole bunch of new stuff after we've started things. That's just the way of life. And we've all had that feeling of, I wish I knew that, but I know now. That's what that feeling is, is all of that information discovery that occurs after we make the decision. How do we get ourselves out of this bind? And the answer is that you have an option to quit things. So when you discover new information and it turns out that that information is bad news, you can stop. So that was kind of the setup. And I think that people logically understand that. But what's really interesting is when you look at human behavior around this, it turns out that what you logically understand is not necessarily what you do. And the science is very strong. We're talking about decades, like half a century of science that says that when we get that bad news, logically we say, oh, yay, we have this option to quit. We'll walk away from it. We don't. We escalate our commitment to the losing cause. So I just felt like given how much dialogue there is around grit and you have to like develop that grit as a muscle and stick to things and you'll succeed. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Or Churchill, never give up. Well, it's never, ever, ever, ever give up. And people forget the other part of it, which is except in matters of, I think it's honor and common sense, something to that. But he's even saying there, but I don't mean just don't do that, but people forget that part of it. Winners never quit, quitters never win. The deck is so stacked against us ever walking away from anything because we think that quitting is for losers and grit is synonymous with character. I just felt like somebody needed to say, look, when you start things, you don't know a whole lot. Sometimes you're going to find out a lot of bad news. And when you find out that bad news, you better skill yourself up on this ability to walk away from things. And it became a total obsession for me. I slumped down and said, oh, okay, I guess I got to write another book, <laughs> even though I said I was never going to do it again. I'd really love to explore, Annie, some of the well-known phrases that you've mentioned just now and the idea of re receiving bad news and not wanting to quit on the back of it versus the other well-known phrase about quitting when you're ahead. And I guess just how the psyche is different. I guess you want to be quitting in a way that feels positive to yourself and not have the stigma around the word quit. But presumably you can't always quit when you're ahead. Maybe you could just explore that a little bit. Basically, when you look at any of the aphorisms around quitting, they're all really bad advice. Most of them are, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And it's like, well, it depends on why you're not succeeding. Are you not succeeding because there's an obstacle in your way? Or are you not succeeding because the thing you're trying to do is stupid and not worthwhile? Well, then you shouldn't do that. Winners never quit. Quitters never win. Well, that's ridiculous. Winners quit all the time. It's part of why they win because they are sorting through the world and saying what's worthwhile and what's not worthwhile. And I'm going to quit the stuff that isn't worthwhile. I'm going to stick to the stuff that is. And in fact, when you treat the world that way, when you're thinking about the world that way, you actually achieve your goals more quickly. Because we think quitting is going to slow our progress down. But it's not true. If you're quitting things that 
are not getting you to achieve what you want to achieve and don't have the possibility of doing so, it, then if you quit so that you can free yourself up to do other things, it's better for you because there's opportunity costs associated with anything that we're turning our attention to. So sometimes those opportunity costs are really great. We'd like to get over and do something else. So that's all on the pushing you to stick to things side. It's bad advice because it's not saying, well, yeah, but you should only stick to stuff that's worthwhile. So now if we turn our attention to quit while you're ahead, that is also very bad advice. Because again, it's not saying only if it's not worthwhile anymore. So I agree, you should quit while you're ahead if the thing you're doing isn't worth sticking to. But you should not quit while you're ahead if it is worth sticking to. For that reason alone, all of that advice is really bad. But the other reason why it's really bad is because it's amplifying biases that we already have. As I said, we have a tendency to stick to things when we're behind because that's what it means to get bad news. So we stick to things when we're behind. And we also have a tendency to quit things too early when we're ahead. I think that one of the best examples of this actually is a really awesome study that was done by Colin Kammerer along with some collaborators, one of whom was Richard Thaler, Nobel laureate, where he really shows this problem of people having a tendency to stick to things when they're behind and quit things too early when they're ahead. So this was done on New York City cab drivers. So this is before Uber. He's looking at trip sheets from the 1980s. The way it worked pre-Uber was that most cab drivers didn't actually own their own medallion. The medallion was basically just the license to be able to drive a cab. And so they would rent the medallion, the cab, for 12-hour shifts. And the cab drivers obviously weren't driving the whole 12-hour shift. They're driving some part of that 12 hours. And so they wanted to look at the trip sheets to see if the cab drivers were making good decisions about when to stick and when to quit. In other words, when to keep driving and when to get out of the cab. And I think hopefully, Mary and Dan, you can agree that a perfectly rational driver would drive a lot when there were lots of fares and stop driving when there were no fares. Perfectly rational. In poker, I wanna play a lot when I'm playing really well and the game's really good, and I wanna not play when there's really good players in the game. I should leave them. That's sort of what we're trying to do. So that's what the cab driver should be doing. So they looked at the trip sheets and they said, oh my gosh, this is really weird. The cab drivers seem to be doing the opposite. So what they found, because remember with the trip sheets, you can see how quickly the fares are coming because they're timestamped. What they found was, oh, when the fares are plenty, coming fast, they quit really soon. They don't drive for very long. But when there's no fares around, they drive forever. Chasing that next fare. Yeah, like what's going on? So by the way, this was such a bad choice that compared to optimal decision-making, the cab drivers were costing themselves, well, they would have made 15% more if they had been more rational about the decision. And what's interesting is that even if they had been random, if they had said, I'm gonna rent the cab and then I'm always gonna start at this time of day and I'm gonna drive for eight hours and then stop. They didn't even take the fares into account. They just said, I'm gonna just drive this amount of time each day. They would have made 8% more money than they actually were, just like on a time thing. Okay, so now the question is what was going on and it has everything to do with quit while you're ahead and our tendency to stick when we're behind. What they discovered from talking to the cabbies was that they had set an earnings goal for the day. So let's say they want to make $300. The earnings goal, once they hit it, notice that they're cognitively ahead. When we think about quit while we're ahead, they're cognitively ahead because they've hit their goal. So they're no longer in the losses anymore, what we would talk about, being short of their goal. This is important from a cognitive standpoint. If I start driving and I have a goal of $300, if I've made $150 for the day on a ledger, I'm up 150, but my mental account is short 150. I'm cognitively in the losses. The cognitive part of it is more powerful than the actual P&L. So when they're short of the 300, they're in the losses and they won't stop driving because we don't like to close those accounts in the losses. We don't like to close things losing. That's why if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. It's such stupid advice because we're already doing that. Now, on the other side, as soon as they hit their goal, notice now they're done. The losses off the books, they're in the gains. They're counting that 300 now. And now they just quit as soon as they hit that number because they're done, because they're quitting while they're ahead. It's terrible, terrible advice. Because as Cameron pointed out, of course, the right thing to do is say, is it worth it for me to stay in the cab for the next minute? What's the probability I'm going to get a fare 
in the next bit here. And if you've been getting fares, you drop somebody off, you get a fare, you drop somebody off, get a fare. Clearly, you don't want to get out of the cab at that point, but they do because they're quitting when they're ahead. And there's a really clear read across to investors there. And it's sort of screaming out that investors, when you're ahead of the benchmark, when you're up on a trade, when you're ahead of your target for the year or whatever, or the month, the quarter or whatever, presumably it's exactly the same equation. There's tons of implications for investors, I think, in all of this. But do you think investors should be better quitters? Do investors get quitting wrong in terms of their buy and sell? They get it wrong in two ways. There's great work from Alex Yamas that shows this. So first of all, he looked at retail investors. Retail investors, as you guys know, will often put in stop loss orders and take gain orders. By the way, those are perfectly good devices to use. I don't have any issue with it. If you don't think that you're going to be a particularly good judge, which many of us aren't, once you have a loss or gain on the books about whether you should hold or sell, because just from sunk cost fallacy, we know that when we have a loss on the books, it really affects the quality of the decision we make about whether we should continue to hold something, whether we should continue to do something, whether it's a stock or should I stay in my job or stay in this relationship? We take the history into account as we're thinking about that decision about whether to continue and go forward. When obviously, if we were really rational, the question would be, would we buy it today? If the answer is no, we should sell it. If the answer is yes, we should hold it. But we don't. We take into account the losses that we already have on the book. So a stop loss order is totally fine by me. We aren't particularly rational. So is a take gain order. But what's interesting when we think about that stick when you're behind and quit while you're ahead tendency that we already have as decision makers is that with retail investors, what you find is that they cancel both the stop loss orders and the take gain orders, but for different reasons. So they cancel the stop loss order in order to continue to hold. Now, why would they want to do that? Well, let's say that you bought the stock at 50, it's trading at 40. So you have this $10, 10 pound loss on the books and you then go to sell. It's that moment that you sell that you can't recover the money. Now, of course, this is silly because you should think about it as a portfolio. The money should be fungible across every investment that you make. But it's not the way our minds work. They'll continue to hold it so they don't have to take that sure loss. There's actually a name for this. It's called sure loss aversion, which comes from Daniel Kahneman. They cancel it so they can hold the stock past 40. Now, what's happening on the take gain side is that they're canceling the take gain also, but to sell early because they want to quit while they're ahead. Let's say that you buy it at 50, you've got a take gain order for 60, you'll sell it at 55. Because then you don't want to keep risk on because what comes with risk is the chance that that $5 gain could get wiped out. So we can see that from retail investors. Now, what's interesting is you might say, okay, but retail investors, they're retail investors. They're not going to be particularly good at these decisions. Of course, they're going to fall prey to these biases. But expert investors, now they know what they're doing. But what's interesting is that while they don't show that same pattern, they sort of quit while you're ahead, stick while you're behind thing. Their quitting decisions are also horrible, just in a different way. Imas looked at institutional investors where he was looking at decisions about what they sell and what they buy when they're fully committed. Let's say that I want to trade a new thesis. Then I have to free capital up from somewhere, which means that I've got to sell something. I've got to take some risk off somewhere else. He looked at, well, what's happening on the buy side when they're buying the thesis? And he found that they are indeed experts that they're doing, I think it was about 120 bips better than the market. So that's pretty good. 1.2%, that's way better than the benchmark. I'd like to put my money with people like that. That's great. They're smart. So what's happening to those exact same smart people on the sell side? In other words, when they have to sell to free capital up to trade something new, and it turns out, and you have to create a benchmark for this because you can't just bench to the market. In this case, they created a benchmark, the researchers did, which was you have to free up capital. What if you threw darts at your portfolio to free the capital up? So that's your benchmark. It just randomly sold to free the capital up. And the question was, did they perform better than that? And the answer was no. They actually performed about 70 bips worse than that. All of which is eating into the 120 bips of outperformance. That's exactly right. The question there is why? Why is that happening? They looked at what they were actually selling. And again, it goes back to this thing of, we don't want these silly rules of thumb. What we need to think about is, is it positive expected value or not? That's really what we should care about when we're making these decisions in the same way that that's how we make the decisions about what to buy. But instead, what he saw was that the investors were only selling out of the tails. In other words, the extreme winners are the extreme losers. 
So they weren't actually looking at the whole portfolio to try to look and say, where are my best bets going forward? And let me just take the risk off of the thing that's got the lowest expected value, and then I'll put it into this new thesis. Instead, it was just extreme winners and extreme losers, and that's where they were selling from. And I think the reason why that's a persistent problem is that you don't really get feedback on the quits. For example, they had to create the benchmark. So investors aren't creating a benchmark and then actually tracking those selling decisions against the benchmark, against some sort of counterfactual where you continued to hold that position and you had sold something else. In a way that we do when we buy things, we're naturally tracking them. We have something very obvious to benchmark it to, and we're checking on it. We're seeing, am I doing better than the benchmark all the time? And we're following it every single day. Once we sell it, it's gone, and we're not benchmarking it to anything. We're not actually running the analysis on the counterfactuals. So then the question is, first of all, you don't even know you have a problem. And second of all, you're not really going to learn if you're not actually creating the feedback. I think that that's where the problem is. So I think everybody's bad at quitting is the answer. Are retail investors worse at quitting? I suppose so. But it's not like the expert investors are great at it. They're bad at it. Within an expert investment team, clearly there's a big focus at the moment on analysis that leads to buys on underlying company financials, pricing points, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think you need a defined role for the quitter or the seller? Or Because at the moment, it doesn't feel like in many cases, you've got a separation of the person who decides to buy and the person who decides to sell. It's kind of the same person. So they're not only are people in general bad at quitting, as you've said, but they're also wrapped into the story of that stock that they did all the analysis on however many months or years ago. There's a few ways to help this problem. The simplest way is to not allow yourself to make the decision when you're actually in it. In other words, at that moment that you're like, oh gosh, I actually have to free capital up here. And instead make those decisions in advance. And you would do that through what I call kill criteria, which is Basically, we can take a simple example, which is if you have a thesis, the thesis implies certain things about the market. So let's say it implies something about fundamentals, maybe interest rates or something like that. What you can say is that within a band, whatever the lower bound and the upper bound is, if interest rates are sitting within that band, I'm obviously simplifying. If they're sitting within that band, then I would continue to hold. But if they move outside of that band, I need to do something different. So it may be, for example, if they move below the band, you might take risk off. If it goes above the band, you might actually put more risk on, as an example. Or it could be just your thesis is so dependent on it being within that band that above or below you would take risk off. It would just be outside of the range at which you think that the thesis is a good thesis to be trading. A very simple example of this that I've been thinking about recently is I think a lot of people got into Bitcoin because they thought it would be a hedge against inflation. I'm not quibbling with whether that was a good or a bad decision, because at the time, the last time there was any kind of high inflation, Bitcoin didn't exist. You're just making certain assumptions about how crypto, how these coins are going to work when there's market chaos or inflation or whatever. So I'm not saying whether that was a good thesis or not. I'm just saying that was a lot of people's thesis, not everybody's, but a lot of people's. A lot of people had that thesis, and that's why they got into Bitcoin. Okay, so you can set a kill criteria then, which is, If I see this level of correlation over a certain period of time, and you would set that out between inflation and Bitcoin, then I must sell. That would be a good example of taking a thesis that implies certain things about what you think the signals are that you're going to see in the future and actually creating kill criteria out of those. And what's really important is that, and I think this is pushback that I get when I'm talking to investors, they say, but my thesis already implies that. And I say, I know it implies that. But when that happens, you're going to say now it's really cheap. That's the issue, isn't it? That's exactly the issue. Often it just means that the thesis has somehow got even better. And then... Exactly. Now it's really cheap. Or you'll shift the reason that you're holding it. So it just turns out, and the science is very strong on this, that doing that in advance, here's my thesis, here's why I want to buy Bitcoin, but here are also my kill criteria. Here are the things that I can see in the future that would tell me that I ought to now take risk off, that that actually will get you to do it better. When I've coached PMs, I get them to start to create kill criteria. So that's one of the first things that you can do. The second thing that's really helpful, you kind of implied, which is get somebody to help you with the decision who isn't the original buyer. So with PMs that have a big enough team, I'll tell them to divide the labor. You have whoever's recommending 
maybe a quant, for example, is recommending a particular trade, that they're not making decisions about when to take it off, that that then gets handed off to somebody else, along with the kill criteria that are generated and allow them to make that decision. The science on this is also quite strong, that this helps. There was a great study by Barry Staw that shows this, where he was looking at a bank. A bank is always carrying some loans that should really be written off, and they don't write them off for all the reasons that we don't quit things. And what he looked at was what happens when there's a management change. So when there's a management change, it turns out all of a sudden, all the ones that mathematically should get written off magically get written (laughs) off because they come in and they see that with much clearer eyes. And there's just lots of evidence that having someone else make those decisions, that they're not carrying the sunk cost, the identity that's associated with it, career risk that they feel is associated with that, so on and so forth. They're not endowed to the decision in any way that they're going to be better with that. When we combine that, Basically, what I recommend is you've got to put this kind of stuff on a cadence where you're evaluating your portfolio. You're saying, what could I see in the future? Because it changes. It may change from the day that you put the trade on. But what can I see in the future? And you define whatever that date is. It depends on whether you're high frequency or you might be long hold or something like that. But what would I see in the future within the time period that makes sense that would tell me that it's time to actually quit this? and put that on a regular cadence. So an example actually is there's a venture fund that I work with and on a regular cadence, what we do is look at what's in the portfolio and we do a whole bunch of evaluation of the portfolio. So the partners are doing evaluation of the portfolio and then we take the top slice that might be candidates for concentrating some capital into those companies. And the partner has to then present to the rest of the partnership When do you think a round might happen? What is the valuation at which you would actually invest in that round? And what would you have to see from this company to get you to conviction? So notice that this is creating these types of criteria in a way where you're presenting to the rest of the group. So you have some pre-commitment to the rest of the group. They're then also going to be able to help act as the coaches to you when that round comes up. And it's just very simple. If the round's too expensive compared to what you said you'd be willing to invest at, you don't do it. If it hasn't actually hit the benchmarks that you said it needed to hit in order for you to get to conviction, then you just don't follow on. And in venture, that's the same as a quitting decision. Because you know if you buy something at seed, it's just in your portfolio. You're obviously not selling it at that point. So the quit decision is, do you continue? Do you concentrate capital or do you not concentrate capital? But notice that that conversation is often happening six months before the company is actually raising around. So this just really, really helps them with these types of decisions about where they're supposed to put the reserves. That takes real discipline and structure, I guess, to keep having those conversations. That's why I'm still around. That's why <laughs> yeah, that's around. Right. That's great for you. This comes into our world in two different ways. One thing that we do, obviously, is we select and evaluate fund managers. And so I suppose we're interested in the extent to which they're practicing this or not practicing it. But the other thing is that we work with clients who are themselves hiring and firing fund managers. So it's kind of the quit decisions on fund managers is a really important part of our job. And all these behavioral things come into play about being ahead, being behind. And then also that dynamic you just described, whereby sometimes we'll be newly appointed to a client, to an investor, and they'll have some underperforming managers. And the temptation there on the slightly negative side can be to sort of clear those out so they're not on our record sort of thing, which might not necessarily be the right decision for the clients. It's a really fraught little behavioral one there. And we know people are pretty bad at that decision because everybody forgets about regression to the mean. And so they fire the underperformers and they stick with the overperformers. And then all of a sudden the overperformers are underperformers, which is exactly what you would expect to happen. And I think quite often with managers, if you were really thought hard about the criteria up front, you probably would say things like, well, if the key person on the team were to leave, might be one. If it was a really small boutique and they got bought by a really big firm, you might say that might be another reason. You probably wouldn't have performance-related ones there. And yet in the moment, it's always performance. It feels like it's such a good signal. It would be things like what you mentioned, but then also the manager tends to be trading certain strategies. And so if you understand what their strategies are, you can also set kill criteria around them. They're coming to you, pitching you in general with some sort of idea about like, here's something novel that's going to generate alpha. And you can set kill criteria around that. Literally, okay, so tell me why you think you're going to generate alpha. And then you can say, okay, so what does that imply about the world? And then if the world is going against that strategy, maybe they pivot and you can go through the exercise again. But if they don't pivot, 
then that's actually a really good reason to ditch them, even if they win. That's the really important thing. So if someone comes in and says, well, if we go back to the Bitcoin example, we're going to invest in Bitcoin because it's going to be uncorrelated with market chaos. And then it's totally correlated with market chaos. Even if they win, you're supposed to ditch them because it just means that it was random. People get lucky all the time. You buy things because your cousin's uncle told you that you should buy something. I hope that you wouldn't want to invest in that person. And yeah, we kind of are doing the same thing all the time where you have a manager who's winning, but for a reason that was totally unforeseen. If that's the case, if the strategy didn't imply that, you shouldn't be keeping them on anyway because you have someone who's flipping coins at that point, maybe worse. I suppose, again, it's the discipline to say it in advance, isn't it? Because I'm sure people listen to this who nod a call, say, I know that, I know that. Oh, of course. But then they're winning. Nobody wants to let them go. To actually say in advance, these are the reasons why I'm going to do it. I talked to Frank Brosens once, who is with Taconic Capital. He said one of the most impressive things to me. He said they once had a trade on, it was some sort of Japanese warrant. They made so much money in the space of such a short period of time that they immediately sold the position because they realized we have no idea what we're doing (laughs) because it was not at all within our projections that you could possibly be making this much money. So clearly our thesis is completely wrong. And they just sold it and said, we don't know anything about this. And that was it. They were done with it. (laughs) You don't tend to hear that many of those stories. You tend to hear the opposite one a little bit more often, I suppose, a bit more memorable. But I suppose those high quality problems are also out there as well. I think you're exactly right. In terms of managers, think about what are the things that you could see within that team that would make you say, no mas. And then also, but really think really clearly about the strategy that they're pitching to you. Is that strategy going to work under the market conditions that you're seeing? Was their forecast of what was going to work or how durable it was going to be or what kind of hedges do they have on? Those kinds of questions, you can actually set out kill criteria for those things as well. That's going to help you to not just peg to what's the performance over the last year, which is the thing that you really, really don't want to get tethered to. Because we know that it's actually pretty bad signal over the course of one year. And yet that's how everybody's sorting it out, which is terrible. Annie, I wonder whether you could share with us, I mean, you've given some really good tangible examples that illustrate the power of kill criteria, that illustrates fresh views coming in. As you were researching for your book or generally from your background, what's the sort of most unusual or your favorite example of good behavior when it comes to quitting that we can learn from? There's two. In terms of great examples, let me give you one that doesn't have to do with investing. I think there's so many great stories about grit that start on Mount Everest. I mean, it takes a lot of grit to climb up Mount Everest. But I think that there's a great story about quitting also that occurs on Mount Everest. And someone just ought to tell one of them because we never hear them. This one is about three climbers, Dr. Stuart Hutchinson, John Tasky, and Lucas Hitsky. And they were part of a climbing expedition in the 90s at the point that climbing Mount Everest became a fad. There were eight climbers in their expedition, but these three became like really close and friendly. And then there's three climbing Sherpas and an expedition leader. And just to set the stage, when we're thinking about things like sunk cost as an issue, I think it costs like 70 or 75,000. I think it was 75,000 for them to even go on this expedition. So there's a lot of sunk cost there. And then there's the time and effort and money. There's how your identity is tied into this idea that maybe you're going to summit the world's tallest mountain. And when we go back to that idea of what does it mean to be cognitively in the losses, we know that if you climb 29,000 feet in the air, but come 300 feet short of Everest, you failed somehow, which is weird because your PNL is really good. You gain 29,000 feet, but we know that we process that as being in the losses. So what happens to people when they get toward the top is sort of what we mean by summit fever is You can make really bad decisions about whether you ought to continue because when people turn around, it's like, I failed. Look at all the time and money and effort that I wasted trying to get here when really they're like this far short, like it's nothing. But there's so many pressures to keep going. So people recognize that. And so what they do in mountain climbing, this is not just true on Everest, but everywhere they set something called the turnaround time. As we're talking about kill criteria, this is going to be the same thing. And the turnaround time basically is wherever you are on the mountain at that time, you have to turn around. doesn't matter whether you reached your final destination. So on Everest, on summit day, the turnaround time is 1 p.m. And the reason for that is that they know if you get to the summit past 1 p.m., the likelihood that you're descending the mountain in darkness, particularly some very dangerous parts of the mountain, one part is called the Southeast Ridge. 
is too great. And the Southeast Ridge is very narrow and it's very easy to slip and fall. And if you do that, you're going to fall to your death into Nepal or Tibet, depending on which way you go. And obviously you'd like to avoid that. So these three climbers set out on summit day. They know, they've been told by the expedition leader that the turnaround time is 1 p.m. And it's a slow day on the mountain. Slow, slow day. Why? Because it's become very popular and there's like 30 something people trying to ascend at the same time. So there's basically like a traffic jam. So the expedition leader comes up behind them and Hutchinson stops the expedition leader and says, just how long is it going to be until we get to the top of the mountain here? And the expedition said about three hours. And then he keeps going ahead of them. So Hutchinson holds tasking Kasitsky back and basically says, we have a problem because we just got told it'd be three hours to the top of the mountain. It's already almost 1130. So by my count, we'd be lucky if we made it by two. That's if somehow things really sped up. But it sounds like 2.30, and that's already past the 1 p.m. turnaround time. So they had a little confab. It took a little convincing, but they did indeed turn around, and they went back to Camp 4, and they lived. People are like, yawn, what a boring story that is. That's so stupid. No wonder I don't know who those people are. But The thing that's interesting is that not only should you know who those people are, because I want you to put yourself in the position of people going on ahead of you and having to live with the idea that they might make the summit when you're turning around back to Camp 4. They're only like 300 feet from the summit or 300 yards, I think, from the summit. They were close. So first of all, just think about that. Think about the act of heroism of, oh, no, it's 1 p.m. We're going to hit it. Let's just turn around now. Just knowing that. The thing that's interesting is that we do know who these climbers are. I mean, at least anybody who's read Into Thin Air by John Krakauer, seen the documentary Everest or seen the movie Everest, because they were part of Rob Hall's expedition. And Rob Hall famously got up to the top at two. He was the one who told them three hours to the summit. He got up there at two, waited up there for Doug Hansen, who was one of his clients, who arrived at four. Now, Lest you think he was waiting to try to help him back down. Actually, because it's single file, if Rob Hall had come down after two, he could have caught Doug Hansen along the way and brought him back down with him. So he waits there to try to allow Doug Hansen to summit. Doug Hansen gets up there at four, immediately collapses and dies. And then Rob Hall gets stuck up on the mountain and dies up there also. These three climbers being part of that expedition were absolutely in the book and the documentary. And John Krakauer, who wrote Into Thin Air, said they were the best decision makers on the mountain that day. Now, what I want you to notice is nobody remembers them. The protagonist, in fact, the hero of that story is Rob Hall, who did not follow his own turnaround time. But we admire that kind of perseverance so much that these three quitters, they're invisible, as invisible as the expert investors who are selling their positions and not tracking them afterwards. They're totally invisible to us. And yet they did something really heroic because everybody was going on after them. And we can imagine a counterfactual where those people got up there fine and they came back down and they were going to have to live with that regret. But because they followed the kill criteria, they increased the chances they were going to have a really good result. And we saw what happened to the people who did continue up past that time, including the expedition leader who was the one who had set the kill criteria. What a powerful story. It makes me want to watch the film and read the book with a different viewpoint, which I guess is exactly the point. With a different viewpoint, which is these people aren't heroes. Why are they continuing to go up the mountain? The ones who are heroes are the ones who turned around. From listening to another podcast, you joined Annie. I love the idea of repurposing the word quitting to be a forward-looking, positive thing to do. Because I think it's so embedded in the past having been a failure. And that's why quitting is a bad thing. And actually, if you think about it as a forward-looking actually, I'm doing this so that I have the rest of my life, or I'm doing this so that I have the opportunity to invest in a better company or whatever the decision point you're making is. Suddenly, it doesn't feel like such a bad word anyway. I think that this is the problem is that we forget that sticking to something that isn't worthwhile causes us to lose so much ground because of the opportunity costs that are associated with it. That's what we have to get focused on is what could I be doing with this time otherwise? We have to start thinking about those opportunities that we're giving up rather than the continued slow march toward a goal that is no longer worth pursuing. Actually, one of my favorite examples of a terrible quitting decision is from the 2019 marathon, where Siobhan O'Keefe broke her leg on mile eight, snapped her fibula, and kept running and finished the race. Now, let's think about how absurd that is. She's a marathon runner. She's sacrificing 
a lot of marathons in the future to this decision where she's clearly going to make this injury much worse. It's going to be a lot longer to heal. And here's where you realize it becomes really silly is let's imagine that she was running a half marathon. Do you think that she would have continued and run 26.2 miles? Of course not. She would have run 13.1 miles. The finish line is so freaking arbitrary. That's the thing about it. You have to start thinking about, okay, if I stop now, what are all the races I could run that I might be sacrificing if I continue to go in order to pursue a goal that isn't even worthwhile? And I think that we really have to get our heads around that. If I continue to hold this position, what are all the other things that I'm giving up? My ability to actually trade other things that might be higher expected value just because like I want to stick with this and somehow recover what I've already lost. And I think this problem of opportunity cost, opportunity cost neglect is so great. And it stops us from realizing that exercising the option to quit well is going to make you more money. It's going to make you more successful because it's going to allow you to turn your attention to other things. So this actually brings me to the second quitting story of really good quitting behavior. But I think that this has to do with understanding how myopic we are when we're doing something that we've started, whether it's an investment we're holding or a job we're in, in terms of our inability to be able to see the opportunity costs that are associated with that thing that we're sticking to. And this comes from Stuart Butterfield, who founded a company called Tiny Spec, which had a game. It was like a massive multiplayer online world building cooperative game. And that game was called Glitch. This was right around like 2011, 2012. Super, super beautiful game. The critics absolutely loved it. They called it Monty Python meets Dr. Seuss. And the company was moving along. They actually had investment from Andreessen Horowitz and Nacelle. They have $6 million in the bank and 5,000 diehard users. But what Stuart Butterfield recognizes is there's a problem because they have to get to basically 100 people to get one diehard user. Most of the people who come and visit the game are playing seven minutes and leaving. And that's to get one person who's going to play 20 hours and actually make money for the game. So they all have like a huddle because they realize that's not great. And they decide they're going to do paid marketing, which they hadn't done before. And they're going to test that out for six weeks, which they do. They experience massive customer growth. They're growing about 6% week over week in terms of customers that they're acquiring. And at the end of that six-week marketing push, which was, I think, the weekend of December 11th and 12th in 2012, Butterfield goes to bed on that Sunday night, has a horrible restless night, wakes up the next morning and writes an email to his investors and his co-founders and said, I woke up this morning with the dead certainty that Glitch was over, which is weird. Why did he do that? Well, again, it has to do with expected value. What he realized is that if they were to continue to acquire customers at the rate that they were, they wouldn't break even for 31 weeks and that that was an absurd assumption because obviously when you're doing paid marketing, you start to reach the exact same people over and over again and you start to go outside of the core gaming community. So at that point, he realized that it wasn't going to be a venture scale business. So that on its own is like such a great lesson. When it's the right time to quit, things are often going to look pretty rosy like they did for Hutchinson, Tasky, and Kasichke. Nothing bad was happening to them at the moment that they turned around to Camp 4. They weren't in a blizzard. It wasn't dark. They had lots of oxygen. But you're looking ahead and you're seeing, oh, things look bad in the future. So that's what Butterfield did. He quit. He offered to return the capital back to the investors. But the real lesson here is about myopia. He now says, what's my next thing? Because he's like a founder at heart. This is his second venture that he's founded. He really wants to create something that's venture scale. So he's like, what's my next thing? And within two days, he says, you know, there's this internal communication tool that we've been using for our teams within Glitch. They've been using it actually for like a couple of years and it combined like instant messaging and email. And it was so great. Didn't even have a name. It was just a tool they used that they liked. And he said, everybody really likes that in the company. Maybe that should be the next business. So he gives it a name and the name is Searchable Log of All Company Knowledge. And the acronym for that is Slack. Ah. Here's what I want you to understand. This is what's so important about opportunity cost and how when we're pursuing something, we really become myopic. That tool was around for a couple of years. He already knew that everybody loved it. But while he's pursuing Glitch, he cannot even see it for what its potential is. It's not until he quits Glitch that he sees this opportunity 
and the upside that's associated with the opportunity. The investors all rolled their capital back into Slack. Tiny Spec continued on as a company and they created this tool, which obviously sold to Salesforce for, I think, 20 billion. I think that's such a good lesson of this issue of opportunity costs. What are you not seeing? Because you're pursuing something that isn't working. Now for Stuart Butterfield, he figured that out really quickly, which allowed him to shift over faster than almost anybody would, including, by the way, his investors and co-founders who wanted to continue on with Glitch. But he saw very early, it's not gonna work. He then got over to the opportunity that was gonna work faster than he otherwise would have. But even so, it took quitting to do it. That is a brilliant story, isn't it? It's that positive reframing of quitting as in the, I think you said the positive expected value of being able to quit because of this opportunity cost, which is a bit jargony, isn't it? But there's a positive value to quitting because the other stuff you can do is a huge lesson. Annie, we're running a little bit short of time here. We normally finish up with three questions. Okay, let's do it. Should we run a little wrap up? So the first question is, what's the one thing you'd like listeners to take away from this whole episode? That quitting gets you to where you want to go faster. Nice. I just think it's the most important thing for people to know. If you do it well and you quit things that aren't worthwhile, it's going to get you to achieve your goals more quickly. Fantastic. And Danny, what's the one thing that you think is most underappreciated about investing? I think, obviously, how hard it is to quit things once you're losing. I think that everybody should really appreciate that fact more, that once you get in the losses, your decisions about what to sell and what not to sell are just going to go to crap. By the way, that's true at the poker table as well. Once you're actually in the losses at a poker game, it's going to be very hard for you to figure out whether you should quit or not. And I think we don't appreciate, first of all, how true that is. And second of all, how hard it is to overcome. Because I hear investors say all the time, oh, well, I just imagine what if I were just coming to this today? Would I buy it today? And they think that that's solving the problem. And it absolutely doesn't. Because You can't wipe the losses off your cognitive books just through some sort of pretend game. You've got to put these structures in place like kill criteria. You've got to get other people to make those decisions for you. And it's really underappreciated how malign the effect of being in the losses is on your decision making. And just being on top of when you are in the losses, because for investing, it could be from individual stock, an individual manager. It could be versus a benchmark, versus the year, versus a high watermark, versus your performance fee, versus where you bought it, versus start of the year. By the way, I love what you said there about the high watermark. Because I think that that points out so clearly that being in the losses is a cognitive phenomenon. It's not a phenomenon of your actual P&L. If you're up 4% on the year, that doesn't mean that cognitively you're in the gains. Not if at some point during the year you were up 7%. If at some point during the year you were up 7%, trust me, at that point you're cognitively in the losses. And all of those forces that make us make really bad decisions are going to now bear down on you again. Last question then, any recommendations for us? Books, podcasts, TV shows, anything you've read or watched or listened to that you would like to recommend to listeners? I just watched the best TV show and it's called The Patient. The Patient? Do you have Hulu? No, but they're normally available here on other channels. So So it's The Patient. It stars Steve Carell. And it's one of the best things I've ever watched on television. It's so good. It's comedy, as it presumably is. Highly recommend that. I also think particularly for people in investing, The Power of Regret by Dan Pink is an amazing book and people should check that out. Fab. Brilliant. We'll link to both of those. Links to those in the show notes, as well as, of course, links to your own books and, of course, Quit as well, which is a great book and really hope that the investors can take some of it on board into their decisions. Annie, it's been an absolutely fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.